This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have a really exciting episode. We're talking about the implementation of value-based care in low and middle-income countries. I mean, we're talking about countries like India, South Africa, Ghana, Kenya, and others. The challenge that these low and middle-income countries have is that they're at risk of replicating the structural flaws that we see in high-income countries that increase health spending without delivering proportional results. And there's this new strategy. It's called leapfrog to value. And it's based on building a robust ecosystem for experimentation and having a coalition of actors that can really scale value-based care in these low and middle-income countries. So I couldn't be more excited today to have this really important conversation and see where we can apply those lessons learned to the American healthcare system. Our guest today is Dr. Chinchin Maru. He's the founder and executive director of Leapfrog to Value a health initiative to advance value-based care, as Eric said, in lower and middle-income countries. Dr. Maru joins us for a conversation about value-based care in these countries and how Leapfrog to Value works as a technical and strategic partner. We talk with him about his career in health systems design and how more developed health systems can learn from this work. Chintan Maru is a medical doctor and public health expert who's dedicated his career to maximizing the value of health systems. In addition to leading the Leapfrog to Value initiative, he directs the Global Development Incubator's health portfolio. Let's go ahead and hand it over to Dr. Chintan Maru as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Pleasure to connect, Eric. Thanks for having me. Well, Chintan, thanks for joining us today. I, you know, I, as we begin our conversation today, I wanted to start with something personal. We're going to get into your work in a little bit about you know, what you're doing in value-based care innovation and global philanthropy. But first, I wanted to ask about your family, in particular, your father. He recently dealt with Parkinson's disease, and this gave you a perspective on the work that you're doing in value-based care and the fact that outcomes really matter. And I thought maybe this would be a good place for us to start our conversation today. Yeah, great. Thanks for asking about that, because um, this work is really 
personal to me. Yeah, my dad was diagnosed, I guess, a dozen years ago or so. And I think one of the things that I've learned from him as he's approached his own health and wellness is for him, health was really about going to the gym, like staying in shape when he got that diagnosis so he could continue to do the things physically he really wanted to do. And he had a great team of doctors, but they were frankly often so focused on adjusting doses of levodopa that they sometimes didn't have that chance to really have that conversation about the broader quality of life. And as you know, when you end up with that focus, you end up with a lot of drugs and then each new sort of small symptom might invite another medication. So it was really, for me, like the personal awakening around the importance of thinking about metrics beyond uh, the sort of clinical and really thinking about quality of life. I appreciate you sharing that personal story and how it connects to the work you're doing to advanced human-centered health systems throughout the world. Let's talk now about that work and what Leapfrog to Value is doing to expand the field of value-based care in low- and middle-income countries. Your focus is to develop systems that deliver better health and societal outcomes at a better cost. And you're looking to do that in a way that doesn't replicate the same structural flaws that we see in health systems of high-income countries that increase health spending without delivering those proportional results. Whereas you have countries like the United States, the UK, and Japan that are moving into more value-based systems, you have low- and middle-income countries that are actually moving to volume-based systems without an intentional deviation from the current path. So I'm really interested for our listeners today to learn, myself included, how should we be approaching value-based care in other countries? And then what distinguishes value-based care in high-income countries versus value-based care in low- and middle-income countries? I would say one thing maybe to just set context for us a bit is before even sort of going into the sort of volume versus value debate to just understand where some middle-income countries, for example, and and low-income countries are uh, in their current health priorities. They've spent the last couple of decades really focused on expanding access for things, really essential things like immunizations and uh, access to maternal care. So like antenatal coverage is like a, a core metric. And there's been really impressive and important strides uh, on access. And now there's been an increasing focus on quality. There was a really compelling Lancet commission that was focused on high quality health systems that pointed out that in low and middle income countries now quality has eclipsed access as a prime driver of outcomes. 60% of mortality and morbidity is driven by poor quality and and 40% driven by poor access. So I think that's where things are today. We're in in the midst of this shift from access to quality. And I think that's the sort of starting point or lens through which to look at then this sort of debate on what are, what's the right pathway to get to universal health coverage. Chenton, that makes so much sense. Low and middle income countries like Kenya, South Africa, and India, they're all actively moving to universal health coverage, and they're in a position to experiment more ambitiously when it comes to creating a value-based care model that optimizes health outcomes for all. I can't help but think about how these low and middle income countries are shifting from this access first mindset of establishing infrastructure as the ultimate aim to now thinking about how to improve population health outcomes. One would think that this paradigm shift would 
result in higher spending because of that focus on quality. So how do these countries more meaningfully spend and use their resources to ensure that everyone has access to good quality health care while also providing affordable universal coverage? Yeah, I think there is a big shift in the health systems conversations in low and middle income countries around focusing on primary care and on community-based health delivery, often via community health workers. And you know that essentially is very much aligned with a high value system. The question is, how can you actually get the quality of that primary care high? But I wanted to go back, maybe Eric, to the your earlier framing, because there's a lot in that question around what is the sort of motivation for value-based care in LMICs? So in LMICs, there is this focus actually on how do you spend more on health to achieve universal health coverage? Whereas in high-income countries, a lot of the conversation around value-based care is how can we get costs under control? So in the context of a place like India or Kenya, for example, they're actually trying to expand the amount of their spending, but also expand what they're getting for that new investment. So one big difference in the conversation around value-based care in low and middle-income countries is, is really that focus on how do we get more for these increased investments, these new investments we're making in healthcare. The one implication of that is to think about instead of like volume versus value, you're actually trying to get both volume and value. That definitely resonates with me, Chenton. You know, it reminds me of my own path to value-based care. I was a healthcare executive playing that volume game, and I actually took this trip to Cuba as part of a healthcare research delegation, and I saw how primary care was activated on that island. And it's a third world country, but they had primary care that was so patient-centered, and each primary care physician had about 110 families that they were responsible for, and they personally attended the specialist visit with the patient and were deeply involved in that patient's family. I mean, truly patient-centered primary care. And it just makes me think about these low and middle-income countries and the lessons that we've learned in our own country about healthcare being so local and so dependent on high-touch primary care. How does value-based care in these contexts really stay locally driven and owned? And how does localized ownership allow for a deeper connection to patients? Are there models that you're seeing internationally that allow for that type of experience to happen? Important question. And I think you could think about it at a few different levels. In the global health sphere, in many countries, there are donors that are sort of outsiders that are investing resources to strengthen health systems, whether it's the U.S. Agency for International Development or the Gates Foundation, several others, they work best and they often do work alongside the governments, national governments and local partners. And so I think at one level, this idea of localization is to make sure that these donor-driven or donor-funded programs are really directed by local stakeholders. I think there's another level, and that's maybe the one that you're getting at, Eric, which is at the provider level, there's um, an organizational culture question. Is the healthcare protocol driven where somebody in a capital city is dictating, you know, you need to have these four antenatal visits for a pregnancy and, you know, it should include X, Y, and Z. And this is, this is what should happen, whether you're in a city or in a, or a rural place versus a model that gives providers a flexibility to understand what their own patients need. 
and what it takes to achieve out those outcomes. So it's it's instead of the checkbox on the protocol, how do you actually cede some of that control to the individual providers? Chinchin, I'm really interested in the latter, and I know our listeners would love to hear your perspective on that. There's this personalized commitment that a provider has to have in delivering value-based care. And I can't help but think about the juxtaposition between how we define value-based care in the United States. It's kind of a pseudo free market term. It's really aligned with the business of healthcare and lowering costs. And it has all of that framing around it. And it's even become part of the politically charged nature of our healthcare economy. But in terms of how you're looking at value-based care and the work that you do in low and middle-income countries, it's really about maximizing health. The costs, obviously, are a part of that, but it seems like the framing is a little bit different and perhaps more compelling. Could you speak a little bit about that in terms of the definition of value and how that's translated into some of these low and middle-income countries? Yeah, sure. Yeah, the language really does matter and the framing really matters. Hmm, how to come at this in a constructive way. One way we talk about the, our work is how to prioritize health over healthcare. Going back to this example of antenatal coverage, you can sort of push out ANC coverage or maternity care. And we've seen that, you know, maternity care and ANC coverage rates have risen without actually impacting, in some cases, maternal mortality and neonatal mortality. So it begs the question, if you push out this healthcare and you're not getting health, is that investment actually providing a good return? And so the phrase value-based care hasn't really shaped the dialogue or entered the dialogue for universal health coverage in a place like India or Kenya at this stage yet. It's just coming into the conversation. And so instead of using that terminology and pointing to something from HBS or the Harvard Business Review, we try to talk about it in other terms, like this, this notion of how do we set up these new insurance schemes that are being stood up in, in India or Kenya? How can those insurance schemes prioritize health over healthcare? And that means you know, thinking about payment models that will give providers flexibility to deliver outcomes at a good cost rather than simply paying for healthcare activities delivered. It makes me think about, Chinton, the challenges that we have in the United States. We have this level of inertia towards value-based care. I mean, we're moving at a glacial pace because of all of these entrenched interests. And you mentioned in India that there's maybe some new payment models that are better aligned with societal outcomes. And, and in the U.S., we seem to have these incumbent players and legacy systems that are maybe barriers to adoption of value. Do you have some of those pre-existing headwinds in place in countries like India where you're working against some countervailing force and other business models that are really set up to focus more on transactional care versus value-based care? Yeah, there's definitely not a blank slate or a blank canvas. There is already a ton of both vested interests and infrastructure that exists in a place like India or Kenya or South Africa. But what we often talk about in our work and this sort of whole notion of a leapfrog is that you could think in the development of this health system, these two conceptual time points. One, you could think of as a point of feasibility and another one, a point of path dependency. And by point of feasibility, what I mean is that there are certain prerequisites that you need in place to make value-based care work. There are things like, do you have the data system to measure value, without which you can't actually think about delivering and optimizing delivery around value or, 
orienting your payments around value. So there's some point of feasibility. And then further down the line, there's some point of path dependency at which point there's already a pretty heavy investment in EMRs, for example, or claims data systems and in a really heavy hospital and specialty-based system, at which point it's really hard. We know, right? Whether it's the US, the UK, or Japan, we know it's hard to steer a system like that in a new direction. So between those two points, a point of feasibility and a point of path dependency, we see there's some window of opportunity, and, and perhaps it's quite narrow, window of opportunity to, to leapfrog to a more value-based approach. And I would say particularly, which countries are in that sort of window of opportunity? The reason I keep mentioning these three countries, and maybe there's a handful more, they all happen to be setting up national health insurance schemes of their own in Kenya and in South Africa, in India. Ghana has a a relatively young one as well. And as those insurance schemes really grow and more of the population is covered, there's a special opportunity to to actually experiment with some of these value-based care models and scale what works in the same way that CMMI, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation in the U.S. was this sort of hub to, to shift some of the payment models and the system in, in a value-based direction, there's, there's an opportunity for experimentation as these insurance schemes are set up. I really connect with that idea, Chinton, and I love the name of your organization, Leapfrog to Value, because you're really talking about how do we leapfrog to value-based care? And to your point, it requires this robust ecosystem for experimentation, and you must put in place a coalition of actors that can really scale the movement. You mentioned some of the countries that you're working with earlier, and your goal in working with them is to really leapfrog those higher income countries, build a value system while providing universal care. I'd love to hear you expound on that idea. What does it mean to leapfrog to value if you're in a health system like India or South Africa? And then how do you start? As I understand, you started with a piece of thought leadership to really begin the conversation with health systems in low and middle income countries. Maybe you could speak a little bit to that as well in terms of how you create that best practices framework and then initiate the conversation to really build the momentum. Great. Yeah. Would love to describe both of those. Maybe I'll start with leapfrog. What do we mean by that? I often point to, can I share with you an analogy from another sector? It can help paint a picture. There's this interesting fact that like the the mobile banking penetration in the financial sector. So in the financial sector, the mobile banking penetration in Nairobi exceeds that of New York, arguably the world's financial capital. And, and why is that? It's that you know those brick and mortar banks in New York really still reign. Whereas in, in Nairobi, there was this, not only was there a, a unique opportunity because there wasn't as much of an entrenched ecosystem, there was also a lot of ingenuity. People were already using their phone credit they don't have these prepay systems. They were already trading goods in the informal markets using phone credit. And so that actual behavior and ingenuity of people in those informal markets was the origin of the mobile banking system in Kenya, which now is a really, you could say, high value solution for the financial sector. And so when we were thinking about the, the leapfrog to value work and, and what does that mean for health systems, it's, it's, an, it's a unique opportunity to, to think about how we can actually learn from the ingenuity of healthcare practitioners on the ground, the way that they're already sort of enhancing the value of care, even if they don't use the phrase value-based care, learn from that and and actually build systems around some of that ingenuity. The second part of your question was around what's the sort of journey we're on? 
So yes, we started working in, in 2019 on a piece of thought leadership to really offer a strategy for a health systems transformation. And that was a, a partnership with some leading global health donors, including the USAID Center for Innovation, the Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation. And we had a chance to consult people, practitioners, thought leaders, people on the ground uh, in a handful of low and middle income countries to, to learn, to tap into the ingenuity of what was, was happening on the ground there. And so we launched this report just a couple months before COVID really hit at the Center for Global Development. And that was a way for us to sort of offer a framing and inject this sort of idea of value-based care into the, the dialogue around universal health coverage in, in low and middle income countries. And following up um, from that report, we're really trying to take action on the report's core recommendations. And the main one is, how do we get more really compelling examples of innovation, of experimentation with these value-based care models. So even during COVID, we've basically spent the last 15 months really focused on setting up some compelling value-based care experiments. I'm thinking about, so you've released this report to provide a blueprint or a strategy to provide framing around this health transformation that takes place how do you go about democratizing the findings of this report so that it can reach scale and really have penetration in other parts of the world? And what partnerships are needed along the way in the value journey to really achieve the scale to make this a successful initiative? So to get buy-in from local stakeholders, we're working shoulder to shoulder with local stakeholders and trying to understand what are the immediate problems and challenges that they're facing? So in the context of COVID especially, which is sort of looming over any conversation right now, there is a real special moment in some ways because there has been actually tremendous innovation in, for example, the adoption of digital tools that could actually really be strong tailwinds for a value-based care ecosystem. There's also been a lot of pressure on budgets. So there's a real interest in generating efficiencies and not efficiencies that might be long-term, but efficiencies that you could bank on in a shorter timescale. And so part of building buy-in in the short run is really trying to understand what are, sort of, what are the pressing needs and how can some of this value-based care experimentation meet those needs. So value-based care, wherever it is, it's essentially really partnership-driven. Uh, how do you bring payers and providers to the table? How do you bring regulators and public sector stakeholders to the table? And we know that these models in a place like India are not really ready. There is no blueprint ready, so, and there's, there's not a sort of pathway to scale immediately. So the way we think about partnerships is what are the partnerships that are required to get really good innovation and experimentation going. Who needs to be at the table for that? One precondition for us is to make sure that even if a pilot is small, that there is some scale partner at the table that's helping set the bar, the, like the performance bar, performance threshold. If you achieve this level of value or achieve this level of performance, we're willing, willing to scale what works. And that's important because for the investment in innovation to be meaningful, you need some, somebody at the, at the table who's prepared to, to scale what works. Another important ingredient in a partnership is, I had mentioned before, the role that 
global health donors play. Right now, country governments don't have the budgets to put into higher risk experiments like a value-based care pilot. And so an important role that some of the global health donors can play is providing a bit of that risk capital to cover the costs of design, cover the costs of, of implementation of some of these value-based care pilots and allow those learnings then to be passed on to these new public and private insurers that are trying to scale their products. And so you know, beyond, I think, the traditional value-based care partnerships where you might have a payer and provider joined up, having these global health donors to also bring in some of that risk capital is, is a critical ingredient. Well, I can't help but think about this leapfrog to value concept that we're in. And we think a lot about value here, obviously, at the race to value. But there's this analogy that's in my mind, like you take this example of climate change and, you know, you, you want to have environmental sustainability and we need to have societal awareness around the importance of being ecologically responsible and investing in the right systems and models to really support sustainability and not investing in things like coal. And I can't help but think about when you look at value-based healthcare, having that same lens, you're not going to want to invest in hospital beds above and beyond what you need. And you want to go upstream and meet patients where they are in the community. And you want to be able to leverage technology in a way that is meaningful to the patient and creates that engagement. Can you speak to where some of the political headwinds may be in terms of creating that paradigm shift? I mean, we certainly see that in the example that I gave on climate change and where you have a lot of people ignoring it and saying it's junk science and all of that. Are you encountering that same kind of counterforce when it comes to generating this awareness around the importance of value? To take that analogy a little bit further, right? Like what we, we've got coal plants and coal plants themselves have like some, you know, a 30 year lifespan. I actually, I don't know the details, but right. Like once you start up a coal plant, it's got a, it's got a lifespan. And we know in high income countries that in some cases the, the highest value thing to do is, is to actually mothball hospital beds, right. To sort of take out some of the excess capacity in the system that sometimes gets utilized. So if you were to look at the look at cities like Bombay in India or Lagos in Nigeria and think like what is the appropriate amount of hospital bed capacity and specialty capacity in those markets right now if you ask in those two countries Nigeria and India the the private hospitals account for roughly three quarters of the healthcare system. The metrics that they perform on are, as you might imagine, how many outpatients can you turn into an inpatient? And can I keep my hospital beds filled? And how much revenue can I get or profit can I get per night? And that business model, if you grow that business model and you, you attract more investment in these hospital and specialty-based systems, you end up with, you could say, analogous to the coal plant, a bit of a path dependency around your overall sort of supply, the structure of your supply. And so one opportunity here is if we think on the investment side, can part of the leapfrog be really sensitizing healthcare investors in these markets to take a bit of a civic spirited point of view, perhaps even before any value-based payments really shape the market to in almost in the same way that we have some ESG standards on what you should or should not invest in. To, to understand at what point are we actually investing in perhaps too much or saturating a market too much with capacity that would send a system down a, a low value trajectory. There's another aspect, Chintin, that I wanted to kind of run by you here. 
I'm thinking a lot also about in these models where out-of-pocket patient spending is impacted. I mean, you have some countries that may have as high as three quarters of a spend that's more derived from the patient. And other countries, they're relying on the public sector for the majority of health payments. And in this push towards universal coverage, I know part of the goal is to pool risk better and decrease out-of-pocket spending. Can you talk about kind of that unique dynamic that's in place? And then if you have a health system that's predominantly funded by the public sector, does that give you what you need as a country to create the right incentives with the patients in terms of buy-in and accountability for their own personal health outcomes? It's a really important question. As you know, in the U.S., when you have a lot of payer fragmentation, if one payer introduces a value-based care model with a certain set of bells and whistles around it, it's hard for a hospital system or a health system to respond to that if, if that payer is maybe 25% of the revenue. And similarly, like what you were saying about the out-of-pocket spending, you can imagine if, if out-of-pocket spending is really high, then you don't have just like the four dominant health insurers in that market. You actually literally have like thousands of households as payers that you're, you're responding to. So it, it's not a ecosystem that's conducive to to really scaling a value-based care model. And so in that context, there's really a couple maybe opportunities. One is that there is a way, and we've seen some players come to market with direct-to-consumer products that are not necessarily value-based care, but have some features of it. So for example, there are health providers in India that will provide service guarantees direct to the consumer. So if you get a dental operation, if there's any complications in 12 months, we'll cover the, the complication. And if value-based care is, is essentially, you know, we talk about shifting risk from payers to providers, that direct-to-consumer example is a great example of shifting risk from the payer, in this case, the household, to the provider, the dental surgeon. So there's one opportunity, just going back to your question around out-of-pocket spend, how do you do value-based care when there's such a high proportion out-of-pocket? One is to design offerings that are direct-to-consumer. And I think the, the other opportunity is perhaps longer term, which is how do we actually find the provider context? Like with value-based care experimentation in LMICs, what we're always looking for is like, what are the tip of the spear opportunities? It's not going to be in any hospital or in any context. The tip of the spear opportunity might actually be a vertically integrated system. So for example, in, in India, the railways or the state employees are, are in vertically integrated programs. Perhaps those are the best places to start with value-based care because the, the payer provider context allows for it. And I'm also thinking about where some of these low and middle income countries are in terms of looking for exemplars and value-based care and universal coverage. And that example certainly is not the United States. But one example that does come to mind, and I wanted to ask you about it, is uh, Thailand. Thailand introduced universal coverage reforms back in 2001, and they were one of only a handful of low and middle income countries to do so. And they've had some relative success there, as I understand. And their financing model, I think it's like 65% that comes from government and 35% that comes from private sources. So I wanted to ask you if maybe there's a lesson to be learned there. And then also, are there any other countries in the world right now where you see 
that they're happy with the system or are we just looking at a situation where there's always going to be problems, but we have to learn and innovate and get through those problems to make healthcare better for everyone? Yeah. Yeah. On the, on the question of exemplars, Thailand is an example that we covered somewhat in our report on leapfrog to value. And some of the innovation there was really around adoption of pretty early adoption of relative to peers, an approach to financing primary care and also using DRG payments for hospital care and important sort of uh, capabilities of an early stage insurance scheme. I actually think that in some cases, it's not necessarily the country level that really offers up the sort of best exemplar. If I go to that earlier point around looking for ingenuity that maybe is homegrown, India is a country with actually a number of really great examples of high value care delivery models. For example, in the particularly in the like in procedures. So for example, in in eye care and in cardiac surgery. There are really stellar examples of how you actually use high volume systems that are focused on value improvements, uh, both quality and cost efficiencies, uh, like Arvind Eye Hospital or Narayan Hospital uh, in the cardiac surgery area, where they've delivered really high value services. And so the question is, what can you learn from those examples that could actually be scaled at a higher level? Chinton, I know you've referenced a lot in your work, the focus on Kenya and South Africa and India. And I know those are great places to start the conversation because they're actively moving towards universal health coverage. They're also in a middle income tier that might allow them to be in a position to experiment more ambitiously. Could you talk a little bit about some more specific examples around building the right consortium of actors and focusing on, on a programmatic level, different disease interventions or care pathways that you might be piloting to really innovate around this concept of value? Yeah, sure. So one great example is tuberculosis and TB care in India. India has a quarter of the world's TB burden, and the program has made pretty significant strides in extending access to TB care across the country. However, it still has a long way to go to achieve its, its goals. There's actually a time period where I think it was 2015 to 2019, where TB spending in India doubled at the same time, mortality from TB doubled. And so there's, you've got a, a program that's investing more, but not necessarily achieving the results uh, it's hoping for. And when we look at that in the TB space, and you, you, you can actually see almost in a waterfall graph, like the drop-offs across a care pathway from diagnose, like what percent are diagnosed, what percent are treated, what percent complete tre treatment, et cetera. Um, and what we've discovered is that it's a really good example to illustrate that today's model, the historic model, which is really centered around this idea of directly observed therapy, where you literally watch a patient take a pill to ensure that they've got, they're adhering to the adhering to medication, that sort of like accountability approach hasn't really resonated with patients and patients really want a more human-centered approach that maybe addresses mental health concerns or discrimination they, they're facing at the workplace because they have TB, they might, they might lose their job. You know, it's a disease of the poor. So there's many other sort of uh, social determinants. And so the thesis there, our work on TB has focused on can we actually develop a more human-centered model for TB care 
And is that investment in a more human-centered model, can that actually pay off in the long run by saving money because you don't need to have that second-line TB therapy? You don't have to spend money on those complications. And so it's a really well-defined care pathway that also, because of the public health data sets, it's also a good place to start because the, the data is better. So we, we, we actually have some digital systems in India to track TB patients. So for TB in India, and, and I'm, I'm probably saying this in a, middle, in, in a bit of a convoluted way, but we are essentially working with the USAID India mission has supported us to design a value-based care pilot for TB in India. And there's a, an implementing partner called World Health Partners, along with Harvard School of Public Health, the Indian Institute of Public Health, and a tech partner called Everwell that's launched this value-based care pilot in, in four districts in two states in India. And we're trying to measure and test this core hypothesis. Will this human-centered model that addresses mental health concerns and social determinants of health Will that human-centered model actually lead to a higher value for, for patients and also for the payer, in this case, the Central TB Division of India? Well, Chintan, you have this human-centered model, but as you mentioned, it's also enabled by technology. And I wanted to expand on that concept a little bit. I mean, we're certainly seeing here in the American health system that technology is an absolute imperative in value-based care delivery models for reasons that include safety, geography, patient convenience. And we have now an emerging movement towards various digital health apps that are gaining popularity in the market in helping patients better manage their chronic disease. We've been leveraging telehealth in remote patient monitoring during the pandemic crisis. And I'd love to get your perspective around the role of technology in some of these low and middle income countries as they look to leapfrog the value. And then also, can you talk about getting the performance management cycles up and running on some of those important initiatives? How do you get the data to really optimize around it to make sure that you're hitting the mark in terms of human-centered outcomes? Great. Yeah, the role of technology is definitely central in an overall approach to leapfrogging to a value-based health system. And you could think about it in three parts of the health system, in technology that can help us better get insight into value or measure value. Secondly, how you can use technology to, to get higher value delivery. And as you say, also support some of these improvement cycles. Uh, and thirdly, technology that can actually support payment. And I would say on the, on the first there's a, a great opportunity to shift from, from measuring the sort of amount of healthcare generated to measuring actual health. And one feature of that, as we know, is getting direct sort of feedback from patients on their outcomes, whether it's PROMs or patient-reported outcomes or patient experience measures. And in many of these markets, there is a, a really um, growing and high uh, literacy with mobile phones, for example. So it, it, there's a tremendous opportunity for the data systems to really get direct feedback from patients and really begin to measure that numerator of value. And at the same time, many of these countries are right now articulating their own national digital health roadmaps. So in that sort of longer term vision, this the national digital health blueprint in India, for example, can we actually influence that to make sure it incorporates the capacity to, to really measure value and, and not simply replicate some of the 
more claims-oriented systems that we see in a market like the United States. On, on the delivery side, in some ways, I think it would be familiar to a lot of listeners because there's a tremendous opportunity for that COVID has actually shined a light on around how we can use technology to enhance delivery. And so some of those telehealth solutions that really shift the site of care away from a facility, sometimes into the community, into the home, are also really relevant in, in low and middle income countries. I would say an additional feature there is how to use technology to improve delivery by capacitating and strengthening and extending the healthcare workforce. The healthcare workforce is, is such a critical part of the, the puzzle and how do you actually build the skills and support a health workforce that's already pretty stretched and strained. Technology to, for education, technology that makes their, their own workflows easier would be a critical component. So yeah, those are, those are some examples that I think are, are really relevant. Actually, I was just going to jump in with, with one more one. I just forgot. There's like on, on the payment side, you know, because the provider systems are so fragmented, there aren't these like, you know, larger health systems that have significant market share that there are platforms that are helping integrate these really fragmented providers. In, and that's actually really important. So you can establish networks that you could actually support value-based care payment in the future. I'd also like to hear your perspective on patient reported outcomes or PROMs. It's so important to measure and report outcomes in a way that accelerates learning and allows us to measure what's really important for patients. We often don't do that in some of the more process-based, heatest types of measures that we're used to in the U.S. With patient reported outcomes, not only does it give us a window into the patient's current status, it really honors them as a human and what's important to them. They can also help guide those clinical decisions and create that shared clinical decision-making opportunity, which could create further alignment and engagement between the patient and the provider, which is a great source of process improvement. I'd love to get some additional examples of what you might be seeing in terms of patient-reported outcomes that are being implemented in low- and middle-income countries within value models, and just then generally and philosophically, kind of how you as a physician connect with the concept of patient-reported outcomes. Yeah, we're working on this with USAID and PEPFAR's Datafy program, which is really strengthening data systems for HIV care. And HIV is a really interesting example where PROMS could be, I think, a real game changer. Right now, the dominant metrics that really govern HIV programming, there's three, they're, they're often called the the 95 goals, that 95% of people with HIV are diagnosed, 95% of those are under treatment, and 95% of those are virally suppressed. And those are really great core clinical outcomes that help bring clarity and focus to performance. And yet, uh, there has been an advocacy around a fourth goal, a fourth goal being quality of life. So if you're virally suppressed, are you actually also thriving and flourishing as a person with HIV? And I think it's a goal because quality of life is a goal in and of itself. And I know that personally, as, as I was even mentioning with my own father, it also has this other conceptual advantage, which is if you're able to perform better as a system at addressing people's quality of life needs, you're going to have more people showing up seeking out HIV services and more people staying in treatment. And that's really important because 
on these sort of three goals, the 95, 95, 95 goals, there's still a lot of progress to be made in terms of getting people diagnosed in treatment and virally suppressed. And so if we add this fourth goal, it could have this really strong reinforcing effect, which is supporting people to actually show up to seek out services and stay in care. And so I I would say that proms are a big part of the story, and especially in care pathways like HIV, where care seeking is such a critical element to public health success. Great. And thank you for that response. It's definitely food for thought. And I'd also like to ask you about workforce development and how that is part of the value transformation in low and middle income countries. So much in our country here, when we talk about value-based care, we're thinking about the experimentation of payment models and creating structure to align incentives and really focusing almost in a hyper myopically way on costs. And really to unleash the full promise of high value, high quality care that's delivering equitable outcomes, you really have to have a workforce that's oriented conceptually around the concept of value and high quality care and really tapping into that sense of altruism that I think is so important to drive a movement like this. So I wanted to ask you, Chinton, if you could maybe elaborate more on what you see as the opportunity for workforce development to drive success and build industry capability in these low and middle income countries as they leapfrog the the value? And then maybe what can we apply here in terms of our own workforce initiatives in this country to reskill our workforce so we can move to value-based care here as well? There are a few elements of the workforce that I think are relevant in this shift towards value. One is there is value-based care is a shift away from a more protocol-oriented um, approach to healthcare, in my view, to one where you're entrusting the providers to be better stewards of resources and to, to deliver quality and results uh, based on outcomes. And to do that, you actually need a workforce that is able to respond to these you know, payment models and, and actually take on that responsibility of improving quality and doing that and, and managing the costs associated with a full care pathway. One workforce goal is to really build up the provider's ability to take that ownership. Another sort of workforce capability is really around digesting type of data that hasn't really been sort of central to healthcare delivery. People are accustomed to looking at a certain kind of of outcomes data or a certain kind of healthcare process data, but maybe don't have as much experience interpreting the sort of outcomes data and patient reported outcomes and and longitudinal costs. So all the capabilities required in in measuring value and, and interpreting that to actually drive improvements in action is a critical gap. And those are both in addition to what we were describing before, which was that the the overall healthcare workforce is really underfunded and strained right now, especially in the context of COVID. And so the other sort of workforce challenge is just just even to achieve good quality care in terms of basic clinical skills and, and judgment, you know, that's probably the overarching challenge. I'd love to learn more about the impact of COVID on your work. India, in particular, they've reported more than 30 million COVID-19 cases since the pandemic started last year. And the U.S. is the only country in the world that has reported more cases than India. I know they're really dealing with a highly contagious variant of the virus as well. And your seminal report that came out with Leapfrog to Value came right there in the pandemic. 
And I wanted to ask you just in terms of the movement to value, this leapfrog that you're looking to initiate, how is that movement taking place within the context of COVID-19? In countries like India, where the pandemic is uncontrolled, how do you see value-based care playing out in the long term as those countries stabilize? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, you know, COVID has, for good reasons, drawn people's attention away from some of these long-term health systems change and toward crisis response. So in some ways, our work has, has rightly slowed down. In other ways, I think it has initiated some, some favorable tailwinds that could actually help us in the long run drive towards a higher value system. I mentioned before that it has accelerated the uptake of innovation. It has also just really underscored the need to restore trust in health systems, because there's actually been a lot of distrust that it's, that's made it hard for health systems leaders to uh, encourage social distancing. And there's a whole, for example, like black market of oxygen cylinders in India that has eroded trust. And so I think a second sort of tailwind is just sort of, it's underscored the need to restore trust and make health systems more human-centered. It's also drawn attention to social determinants of health. And I also think value-based care is really also trying to pull us to reckon with some of those social determinants of, of health that could actually be the highest value levers. And then maybe lastly, it's just raised the importance of, of health system strengthening overall for countries, even relative to other sectors. So I think COVID in some ways has slowed us down, but in other ways has actually generated these tailwinds that could move us forward. Interestingly, like there is actually a lot of low value COVID care at the moment. Uh, the way that I characterize that is in some ways there is too little care and in some ways there's too much, too little in that, you know, there's been shortages of oxygen, insufficient vaccination, because, you know, as any country would, even in, even in the U.S., we had some oxygen shortages, but there's, um, it's strained the health system, so there's been too little care. But there's also been too much care because of the high out-of-pocket spend. There's been a lot of just sort of upselling of unnecessary tests and drugs. And the scale of that sort of low-value excess care is, is quite large. And I think it also points us to the need to, to really move toward a higher value system. Well, I know we're looking to adopt a high value system and we're focusing a lot here in the U.S. on social determinants of health. And you mentioned that, Chinton, and the work that you're doing there in low and middle income countries. And I think there's something to be learned in terms of that high value lever and how we can create ways to deliver more community-based interventions. I wanted to ask you if there's maybe any other innovations or things that we can apply through reverse innovation that might be applicable to the United States and the leapfrog to value. Is there anything that you would recommend in terms of us thinking about reverse innovation and how we approach uh, community health? There's actually, uh, if I could offer a book recommendation, there is actually a book that I want to say is called Reverse Innovation in Healthcare that specifically draws from innovations that we see in India. Yeah, it's called Reverse Innovation in Healthcare, How to Make Value-Based Delivery Work that draws on some of the, the Indian innovation. So I, I think there are, particularly in these sort of like high volume Indian systems, where we see orders of magnitude difference in being able to improve value. So that's one, one big opportunity that I would point to. 
Chinton, as we wrap up today, there's one more thing I wanted to ask you. What excites you most about the frontier of value for the future? And as you're looking at value-based innovation and universal healthcare strategies in these countries, when you get up every morning, what are you most excited about in terms of thinking about the future and the impact that you're making? Yeah, what motivates me most is this idea that health systems are really about human flourishing, that we can sort of, you know, go beyond access to, to great health care and, and go beyond health itself to really think about how health systems can, can support human flourishing. And it, and it really goes back to that story that I think you started this out with around just thinking about the health of my father or other people uh, personally connected, including myself, that I really, I really want to see health systems that support human flourishing. And it turns out that they may actually be a better buy too. Well, that really resonates with me. I often say we not only have an economic imperative for value, but we have a moral one as well. And just thinking about humans flourishing, delivering equitable outcomes for all, and really having health being an enabler in our society to create a better tomorrow is just such a powerful idea. It is certainly within reach. I think for a lot of us, it's easy to look at those countervailing forces and headwinds keeping us where we are, but there's also this sense of optimism and hope. And I'm really appreciative of the great work that you're doing there at Leapfrog to Value. How can our listeners learn more about that work and what you're doing on an international stage to support this important cause? Thanks for asking. Please join us on our website or on LinkedIn, where we will often post some of our latest work and, and reach out directly. 